Hello and welcome to the Art of Adoption podcast, a place to share and listen to stories about adoption and to raise awareness and remove any stigma surrounding adoption. On this podcast, you will hear real stories from real people about how foster care and or adoption has uniquely shaped each of them as they share the good, the not so good, and the art of it all. I am your host, Amber White. Hello, welcome back. I hope you all had a wonderful week. We are officially on spring break here at the Way Chalet, and I'm sure plenty of you guys are too. This year, though, we will just be staying around trying to find some fun activities in town to do instead of travel, trying to save some moolah. Do you want to share your story, or do you know someone else who does? If so, there are plenty of ways to reach me. You can find me on Facebook at The Art of Adoption Podcast or on Instagram at Art of Adoption Pod. You can also email me anytime at artofadoptionpod at gmail.com or listen anywhere you already listen to podcasts or by going to www.artofadoptionpod.com. Let's get into it. Today's story is about a family from Kansas whom adopted two kids through private adoption. After having one biological daughter and struggling with infertility for years afterwards, she is a wonderful storyteller, so she will actually be doing most of the talking this time. I'm sure you are all relieved to hear that, right? (laughs) Just kidding. I know you love me. Anyway, here is Emily. My husband is Jacob, and we've been married for 10 years just this year, so that was exciting to reach that mark. And um, our first child is Danica. She is nine, and she was biological but was a preemie. And so after that, we had always known we wanted to adopt, so a few years went by, and we have Knox, who is five. He was adopted in Maryland but he is actually Central American. So he is Salvadoran and Mexican. And then our youngest is Beckett. He is four. He was coincidentally adopted in Maryland and he is Jamaican. So our family represents several ethnicities. I'm actually Guatemalan and my husband's Caucasian. So our family photo is quite the melting pot and I love it. I asked Emily why adoption? What about adoption seemed right for them? Growing up, my two cousins were adopted, and I actually don't have a lot of cousins. I have four. (laughs) So given that half of them were adopted, it just was normal to me. And I was always so intrigued by their adoption stories, and their parents were so open about it from day one. I knew from a very early age that I wanted to adopt, and when I met my husband, he was totally on the same page, which was really cool. But initially we wanted to adopt from the country that my mom was from, Guatemala. And there's been some changes since the time we first started talking about it till the time we were ready to be in action that you, we couldn't do that anymore. But then we kind of got into the conversation of let's look more inward to the United States because we know as much as we love to do things around the globe and help people around the globe, there's a lot of need here in the United States. And so we had that conversation that we we knew we were going to adopt, but quite honestly, we thought we would have two biological children and then adopt after that. And then 
I don't know why. We just had that order stuck in our minds for a while. And after our daughter was born, she was a preemie and then the NICU. And right shortly after that, we realized that I had some medical issues that was going to make it very difficult to get pregnant again. And my husband, I don't want to say he was the driving force behind that because it was a mutually shared decision, but he, he was just so hung up for a few years that he wanted a son to look like him. And my husband's a, he's six, five, he's a huge athlete. And so I think he just had these visions of, you know, when you think of your future family, he saw himself playing basketball with his son who had wavy blonde hair, just like him type of thing. Uh, This is a very normal and typical process that happens with couples who are trying to conceive. After you've adopted and look back on everything with perspective, it's really easy to say, well, that was silly or that was ridiculous to think or feel because when you hold your child for the first time, it's an instant connection, but it's just something you can't fully believe until you've experienced it. So Emily and Jacob started their next chapter by doing several rounds of IVF. It was the worst. (laughs) Anyone who's been through it just knows it makes you really judgy of other people. It makes you unhappy for other people's high moments in life. It's, It's a hard, horrible thing that I would never wish on anyone. And finally, we got to this point where we were like, this is our last one. And it is what it is. If it works out fantastic if it doesn't that's our answer and it didn't work out we took about a year off from everything to just i think emotionally recover and we were letting a lot of that torture kind of cloud our happy parenting moments with our daughter danica because i think as a woman i was probably significantly more upset than my husband was, but it was just really rough. After taking that time off that they needed, they started to bring the subject of adoption back up off and on, trying to decide if the timing was right. I will never forget I was at work and he called me and he was in tears and he said, I'm ready. And he knew that I had been ready for a long time. I asked him, I was like, you know, what, what was it that did it for you and he said that he would get in the car and a song would come on about like a new journey or a new direction or he would turn on the car and an adoption story would happen to be on the radio like just repeated things had been happening to him over a week and then I believe he had a dream that he he told me he was like it was crazy it was like God, God looked at my face and said you don't look like me so your son doesn't have to look like you So he had this incredible, profound moment. So after that, we got in touch with an agency called American Adoptions. They actually are local in Kansas, but they work nationwide. So we just met with a few folks from there, and we actually talked to another couple who had adopted through there. And just as we were kind of collecting data and looking at all the different options, we went ahead and went with that agency for a wide variety of purposes, but it just felt right. And I think we just knew it felt right. And so once we had all our ducks in a row with them, we were live in their system for four weeks to the day and then got the phone call that Knox was born in Maryland. Being on the list for only four weeks and getting a call is not typical. 
When you're approved through an agency for private adoption, they usually will tell you it can be anywhere from one day to two years, but it's typically around 10 to 12 months on average. We hopped on a plane the next day and got to Maryland and got to meet our baby boy. And and it was so funny because in that moment where you're handed this child that you really don't know a lot about, none of that stuff matters. It's like they gave him to me and I had known him forever. He just was the most beautiful, perfect thing I had ever seen. And the having had experienced giving birth to a child, it was the same, like obviously minus the pain. It was beyond beautiful. And we just couldn't take our eyes off of him. Emily said that the hospital didn't allow them to stay overnight. So they would stay until they were kicked out. And then they were right back there as early as they could each morning. Every hospital treats these situations differently. Some are extremely supportive, while others just aren't. Emily and Jacob had a very odd experience at the hospital. The funniest part of this story was when we got to the hospital, we thought immediately we would just be handed this this child and we were so excited. And we get to the hospital and we tell the receptionist, you know, what we're there to do. And she goes, oh, well, our normal social worker isn't here. So let me get the one who fills in on the weekends. So this woman comes down and she's like borderline needing a walker. So she moves at the slowest pace I've ever seen anyone walk in my life and slowly walks over to us. And we're like, you know, sitting there like, oh my gosh, can we see him? Can we see him? And she's like, well, I just don't know enough about your case. And I don't even know who you guys are. So I don't know that I can let you meet him. And we are like, you've got to be kidding me. Like we just got off the plane. This is our son. We have to meet him now. And so she, we finally convinced her to take us to the birth, like the birth floor, whatever floor that, floor that was. And we're on the phone with our social worker and we're like, what needs to happen? Like, do we need to pay her? Like, she can take my purse. I don't care. Like, I want to meet my son. So then she takes us to the birthing floor, but takes us to the uh, copier. And <laughs> she just, I mean, basically every single thing happened so slow So she wanted to copy our IDs and we told her, we said, just take them. Like, we are not going to go anywhere. Just take our IDs. You can take your time copying them. But it was just like turning on the printer and then the printer didn't have paper. So she went to go find paper. Like it was, I felt like I was on a comedy sketch of people who were having this profound life moment meeting their son for the first time, but they can't because, you know, there's not paper in the printer. And she, the first copy she did was bad. So she threw it away and did another copy. And I finally, I don't even remember her name, but I looked at her and I was like, Hey, take my entire purse. There's even cash in there. I don't care. I want to meet my son. And she's like, well, you guys seem like the story adds up. And we even handed her like our entire portfolio of paperwork that had been signed and notarized all these things. And she still just wasn't quite believing us, I guess, or maybe, I don't know if it was an age thing, but it was Seriously, like in looking back, it's funny. In the moment, I was not very happy. (laughs) She stayed in the room with us and watched us the entire time that we were meeting our son, Knox. And finally, my husband looked up at her and he's like, if this is awkward for you, you can leave. And she, the nurse kind of looked at her and she's like, yeah, you can go. You don't have to stay there and watch them the whole time. They're not going to leave with the baby. Don't worry. (laughs) But it's part of our story and it's funny now. Oh man, I feel their anxiety and restlessness in that experience. But yes, it is definitely funny now looking back. So I went on to ask them about their adoption of their youngest. My husband 
<laughs> just everything. It's so funny. It all circled back to start off with, I was sitting at work and he calls me. And again, he's having a, another profound moment. He calls me at work and we had been talking that we knew we wanted to adopt again. And we knew for sure we wanted a African-American baby. Like that's just what we wanted. That was what was on our hearts. And we didn't care for the boy or girl. But at the time when my husband called me, Knox, our middle child was nine months old. And he said he had another one of these profound moments, an amazing dream where God handed him this black baby and said, here's your son. And so he's crying, I'm crying. And he's like, do you want to go ahead and start the paperwork? And I told him, no, I said, you're crazy. We have a nine month old. We both work full time. This is insane. And so after about a week, maybe it wasn't even a full week, I I kind of just was like, okay, let's remove the anxiety from the equation. We, yes, we do want a third child. Like everything made sense, but I think I was just so freaked out because it was too soon. (laughs) And so we got on the phone probably about a week later, we get on the phone with the adoption agency and they were like, you know what, you're not alone in this scenario and it doesn't hurt to have everything ready. We can get you active in the system And since you already have two kids, it's probably going to be a little bit of a wait. They said this one will probably be closer to a year. So then looking at it from that perspective, that kind of calmed my heart. So I was like, oh, okay, this this gives us time. Our kids will be closer to like the 18-month apart mark, maybe a little bit more. That's perfect. So we went ahead and did everything, did our paperwork, and we were live in their system for four days when we got matched with our son, Beckett. Four days. Wow. We were just like, if that isn't divine, I don't know what is. Because yeah, our first one was four weeks, and then the second one was four days. But the four-day one, he was still in the womb. So we had a couple weeks to prepare. So my sons are 13 months apart, almost exactly. As I do, I asked if their adoptions were open adoptions or closed. Technically, they're both semi-open. So we send, per the instructions of the agency and what we agreed to, we send letters and pictures every six months to the birth parents. And Knox's birth family, from the start, they told us that, and, well, and it's a long, longer sad story, but ultimately their family didn't even know about the pregnancy. And so they said for them, that's what made the most sense. And so they just, it was going to be more of a closed, but they only had, like they basically only get the pictures and letters. And they had my email address and they had emailed me one time I want to say it was, he was like three months old and I still have it sitting in my inbox because I just like to look at it every once in a while. And I never wanted to pressure them into talking to us, but both of our boys know they're adopted. We talk about their birth families quite often. And my son who's in kindergarten now in May, he graduated from preschool and they had a little ceremony and he had to go to the bathroom, of course, right before it. We're standing in the bathroom and I hand him a paper towel and he looks at me and he goes, are my birth parents going to be here? And it was, it was beautiful, but also incredibly sad because I was like, buddy, they didn't know. So his is definitely, I would consider it more of a close, even though it's technically semi-open. And then our youngest, we started off, it's also considered semi-open, but we started off very open and we... I, we even gave her a ride home from the hospital because her whole family bailed on her. It was quite sad. But we met her while we were still in Maryland before the ICPC stuff was sorted out. ICPC stands for Interstate Compact on the Placement of Children. And it's an agreement between all 50 states, Washington, D.C., and the Virgin Islands. 
This compact oversees the transfer of a child from one state to another in an adoption or in foster situations. So basically, if you adopt from another state, then you reside, then you will need an ICPC. So we met with her one or two times. And we, after that, would FaceTime. Well, I guess we didn't FaceTime at the time. Gosh, we Skyped <laughs> for, I, like, we had a weekly Skype date and emails in between. And I had a really hard time with that. But I didn't know it in the moment that I was having such a hard time with it. She went on to explain how she came to realize that she was being affected by this more than she knew. Mental and emotional health is just as important in adoption as in giving birth. In this case, one of her friends asked her, Do you think the, what you're dealing with right now is causing X, Y, and Z? And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you didn't have to do this with Knox. Like you walked away and he, you never felt like you shared him with anybody. And Beckett, you've had one leg in, one leg out, so to speak. And it wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but I think just my emotional beginning with my youngest was just different because she was there in the hospital with us. He went from her room to our room, from her room to our room, because we wanted him to have that time with her and we wanted her to have that time with him. And I think I said I was okay, but I wasn't. And looking back, I know that in the moment, I definitely did not know that. To fast forward a little bit, we had agreed with her that by the time my son turned three, that we would make a trip to Maryland to visit. And as the time was up closer to approaching, it was really weighing on my heart that I needed to tell her that I, I know I agree to this and I'm so sorry, but I, I can't. And I need to find a way to, like, you can fly, we'll fly you here. Because that was where I was just really struggling with removing him from his environment. And so we were going to offer to fly her here. And it was like one of those things that within that week, I got an email from her saying, Emily, I can't do this. I thought I could do this. And I thought since it would be three years down the road, I could do this. But she said, I just, I really can't. And I need you to respect how I feel about this. So anyway, we ultimately just decided to table that. And I told her, we are really wanting to be accommodating to you. And more than likely, Beckett is going to want to meet you at some point. And that's, we are open to that. Just know that. And we are ready to have this conversation when you are, even though it was, it was like killing me to write those words just because I don't think my heart was quite there yet, but I knew I, I'm always going to put my child first and I, I want him to know his birth family. From the beginning, Jacob wasn't sold on this idea anyway. When Beckett was two months old, he was just like, I don't see how this is going to be healthy for anyone. We're not doing that. And I was just like, hey, we just need to punt this a few years down the road anyway, because why waste our breath having this conversation now? I just don't think that makes sense. And he, and he was the one who suggested from the start, we should fly her here. And then we can meet at the hotel, but still be in Kansas City. Because the other part, the other difficulty with that scenario is they were both born in Maryland and they both were born basically in the greater Baltimore area. So to fly our youngest there, you know, explaining that to his older brother that we're going to go visit his birth family, but yours doesn't want to meet you. And they live there too. Well, now how do I break my son's heart who (laughs) wants to meet these people and then he sees his brother getting to do it, but he doesn't get to. So I felt like this was just such a complex situation that I I do feel like it worked out for the best at that point in time. I'm definitely, we're both definitely open, open to what the future holds. Emily said that, sadly, they have lost touch with his birth mother since then. 
She has kept all of her points of contact the same with the hopes that both of their birth families will one day reach out. I know she was she was going back to school and she had some big goals she wanted to accomplish. And she said that it just was so hard for her when everything happened that she knew it wouldn't be healthy. And I'm all about people being in healthy places mentally and physically and emotionally. So I was just like, okay, that's fine. Whenever we were initially adopting, every single person that we told was insanely supportive. And it actually was a breath of fresh air because with our infertility stuff, no one would talk to us about it because they were scared. Like they, I don't want to offend you. I don't want to hurt your feelings. I don't want to bring up emotions. If you're having a really great day, I don't want to ruin it for you, you know? And so it was like a switch had flipped. Our friends, family, have never treated our boys any different than they would any of the other children or how they treat my daughter. As she said, they've adopted transracially, meaning outside of their own race. But they understand the importance of exposing them to their cultures so they can still have those connections to their roots. They also had some surprises along the way and were really grateful for the folks stepping up to lend a helping hand. So the Hispanic piece, yes, we already had, we have some traditions and cultural things that go there. But I wanted to make sure that we were embracing of, so Guatemala is in between El Salvador and Mexico, which is kind of cool. So those Central American countries, we wanted to just make sure that we embrace things that you would celebrate there. And so like El Salvador's Independence Day, like we do, we try to do little fun things here and there for that. And then same with Jamaica. But so our youngest, we wanted like simple things like how do you do his hair (laughs) we didn't know and one of our close buddies who is black he his mom and his mom had approached us one day at we were at a gathering or a basketball game or something and she came up to us and she handed us this little thing of cream and she said guys I love you but you've got to fix that baby's hair (laughs) and so we were like oh my gosh thanks so much Sherry like you don't know what this means to us and she said I cannot tell you guys how scared I was to tell you that you weren't doing his hair right, but I felt like you honestly probably didn't know. And we were like, you're right. We don't know. And we can't do this alone. One of our old neighbors who lived down the street from us, to, they are a Caucasian couple, and both of their children who are adopted through the same agency are also Black. And the dads take the boys to go get haircuts every six weeks. And they so it's the two dads taking their Black sons to a Black barbershop because they want to culturally embrace that. And they want them to feel like they do fit in. And this is great, even though your family looks a little different and my dad's white and that's okay. They had a pretty quick and easy process as far as the waiting time goes. Four weeks and then four days, not too shabby. But I asked Emily what, if anything, she would change about the adoption process in general. Fundamentally, there is a disconnect in the United States. I can't speak for other countries to where a couple has the desire and the heart to adopt, but not the resources. And that is so, so frustrating to me because luckily my husband and I both had well-paying jobs. I would get substantial bonuses and both of my bonuses essentially covered the cost of 
each son a year apart from each other. But had we not been in that situation, I honestly don't know how we would have done it. We have some friends who they ended up making like yard games, which were really cool, but that was their primary source of funding their adoption. We were blessed in the sense that we didn't have to do any of that, but we were also incredibly frustrated because we were just like, we did call a couple banks just to see, you know, like what kind of loans do you have and what kind of resources are there? And it was so sad that you can go out and buy this stupid expensive car that you have no right buying, but they wouldn't secure a loan for you to get a child. It was just like a slap in the face or the loan that they would give you had the worst percentage rate. And then the terms were horrible. And then it was like, oh, here's $6,000. Like, well, that's great because I need 50. I would say of all the couples that we've either talked to, mentored, walked through this with, that that's a consistent point of contention that they just, I, we cannot afford this. And that's a really sad reality. And so I would say like, even though we didn't personally experience that, it does, I think our hearts at some point in life and, and even currently, anytime a family comes to us saying, Hey, we're raising money for adoption. We immediately give to it. Like what, whatever we can that month, because we get it. And we want to, we want to be part of, you know, you building your dream family. And that brings us to Emily's Could You Not? Oh, man, the list. I could write a book. I'm really not kidding. And I've joked about writing a book called All the Things You Shouldn't Say to My Family. (laughs) Probably the worst one was, do they all have the same dad? I was just like, rude. (laughs) Like, would you ask a lady who didn't have a wedding ring on with six kids, you know, roaming around Target? Would you ask her if her kids had the same dad? Like, you know, if you feel like you wouldn't appreciate somebody asking you that question, then it's probably not something you should ask. On the other side of that, I love that people ask the questions, but just kind of like use your, use your appropriateness meter, like gauge it. You know, are you asking this question in front of my children who are not deaf, by the way? I mean, I did have a moment where when the boys were both babies and in the double stroller and life was just insane and someone asked if they had different dads. And I, I made a comment that, yep, I just sleep around a lot. And as I walked off, I was like, oh, I can't believe I said that. And my daughter was with me, who obviously could hear. And the boys were so little, they, there was no like understanding of what they had said. And I called my husband in the car, and I was sobbing. I'm like, you would not believe what I just said to somebody in Costco. It was the worst. And it's like, Emily, I know you deal with a lot, but you do a, such a good job at it. You can't let these moments break you because as an adoptive parent, you need to be able to roll with the punches, especially when it comes to something that could be such a sensitive topic. Being able to just kind of let it fall off of you is pretty healthy. But at the same time, I try to use those moments now as an educational moment. And there have been times that I feel sorry for the person that asked me a question because, you know what, I'm going to be very honest with you. And this is how my family looks. And I love it. And we wanted it to look like this. And I think probably the second most hurtful thing would be, oh, you guys adopted because you couldn't get pregnant because that couldn't be further from the truth that my infertility journey had a purpose and it was to prepare my heart for the exact time that I would meet my boys. And I would go through that pure hell again to meet them because that is part of my story. So that has been a little insulting that they're like, oh, it was your last resort. Well, no, it was never my last resort. And I don't think it's ever anyone's last resort. It's 
a calling on their heart and they want to fill that piece of their heart that's been missing. We're closing circles, we got no end. Another sequel about to land. Oh. Oftentimes, I will ask a person if there was anybody in particular that helped them along their adoption journey that they would like to give a special shout out to. And Emily had a few that she wanted to mention. Oh gosh, there there really are so so many. But one that one that does stick out in particular is my stepsister. She was the first one to say, "I know that you guys want this. Go and do it." Type of thing. And so when we were visiting my dad in Western Kansas, she came over to talk to us specifically, and she got off a laptop. So she's like, "Start here. Ask the questions. Start preparing." what you need to do, start doing that stuff. Because no matter where you adopt through, you're still going to need a home study and you're still going to need a background check and your fingerprints and all that stuff. When we got home from that trip, we were just so thankful for her raw honesty of just like, yeah, there's going to be times where it's really hard, but tell you what, raising kids is hard. Giving birth is hard. <laughs> you know, there's, even if you give birth to them, doesn't guarantee that they're going to look, look a certain way or act the way you want all the time. It doesn't matter. You're their environment and they're going to adapt to that, but they're going to be individuals and they're going to make their own choices. So she was really great. I mean, both of our parents, sets of parents. So my mom is no longer with us, but my dad and his stepwife, they were just so awesome and just ready. Like they were to the point where we were, you know, we would say jump and they'd say how high. She said that during their adoption of their middle little there were some financial timing issues because he was born so soon after they were matched. The agency needed the money right away, but she couldn't pull it from her account for about three weeks. So her dad stepped right in. My grandfather had died a few years before and had left some money to my dad. And I called him and I was like, dad, here's the deal. Like, we're going to pay you back. We have the money coming, but this is what's going on. And he said, how much? And give me your account number. And he wired it within 15 minutes. My dad has always just been super supportive of everything. And so that was just, I love that that's part of our story and that it also intertwines my grandpa, who was just an awesome, awesome guy. And Emily said she would be remiss to not include her siblings and Jacob's siblings in all of that thanks. They were there during their infertility journey and really just walked beside them through it all. My, my siblings and my husband's siblings and our best friends in life, just thank you to all of them because they have just, from day one, been so open to everything. And from the moment of meeting these little boys and mentoring Danica and including her on things. And then the same with Jacob and his two brothers. I cannot tell you how much it just warms my heart to know that my boys are fiercely loved by our entire group. Because of how open Emily has been about their journey, she has a lot of folks reaching out to her for advice, to ask questions, or to help them with their adoption process. So I asked her what advice in general she would want to share. So I would say if you are having something weigh on your soul, it is intentional and it has purpose. So don't ignore that. So if you feel like almost not impatient, but just a stirring in you that I am meant to have this be part of my story somehow, please do not ignore those feelings. Do not ignore that calling because it's, it's very filled with purpose and it can change your life, but you just have to trust that these feelings and emotions are happening for a reason and to just be very open-minded and not have the perfect story already written out 
because you might miss out on the perfect story for you if you're so focused on it looking a certain way. Don't ever go through stuff alone. And when the gift of adoption is not meant to be a lonely journey, it's not meant to happen to where you can't share the highs and lows with people, just don't go at it alone. And I say that only because our infertility journey was just the most lonely, lonely space we had felt individually and as a couple. And so whenever we decided to start this new journey and this new chapter, we decided to approach it completely different and we were totally open and honest with everybody from the start and having all these people pour into you or even to just say, Hey, I'm thinking about you. You've got this. It just, there's something about life and that we were not meant to do any of this alone at all. Like we all need our tribes. We all need our communities and it's going to be really hard and it's going to be, you're going to have some really intimate moments and probably really uncomfortable moments, but they can just, change your approach, your viewpoint. It just can be such an amazing thing. So please know that there are so many resources out there and people want to help. You know, when ha people are happy and good things are happening, you want to spread that and you want to fill other people's cups and you want to just say, hey, I've been there. Or, you know, if you are feeling this, run, go and do it. Yeah, it might cause some debt but it also might cause some really great things too. Be really open to using a community or creating your own. If you don't have that, find it because there are people out there who want to encourage you and want to support you. Thank you so much, Emily, for sharing your story and your insight with us. And thank you, the listener, for tuning in again to hear it. I appreciate it more than you know. Did you like what you heard and or know somebody who would? If so, they can find me on Facebook at the Art of Adoption Podcast or on Instagram at Art of Adoption Pod. They can also email me anytime at artofadoptionpod at gmail.com. And you can find every episode at www.artofadoptionpod.com. The theme song, Forever Home, was written and produced by my friend David Other. Find him on Facebook or at davidother.com. Artwork, production, and editing of this show is done by me, Amber Way. Tune in next week for a special mini episode from yours truly. And please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a show. If you enjoy what you hear, tell your friends about it. And please rate and review me on iTunes, hopefully with five stars. Emily and Jacob have a plaque mounted in their home with a special saying on it that they use as their family motto, and I wanted to leave you with it. It reads, Make today ridiculously amazing. Have a wonderful, ridiculous week. Goodbye.